a Radio 191 FM podcast. Mr. Speaker. All right, Monday morning, 8.30 a.m. I'm joined by John Moore and Jeffrey Miller. Morena's you both. Good morning. Oh, turn up John's uh, mic. Um, yes, right, yeah, let's get it off, kick off with the ACT Party. Um, for the first time in a long time, uh, we are seeing the ACT Party on the rise in the polls, with the latest poll uh, showing a 3% result. Uh, this coupled with David Seymour's seemingly safe seat, um, that would see them get three seats at the next election and perhaps uh, hold the position of power in the 2020 election. Um, why is this happening, Geoffrey? Well, there's a few things, uh, really, um, but I think essentially ACT is capitalising on the culture wars that we're seeing in, in New Zealand at the moment. Uh, issues like free speech, uh, for example, um, also the opposition to the gun legislation that mm-hmm. was enacted after March uh, the 15th. So, um, you know, ACT was scratching around for issues uh, for a long time that actually resonated with the public because of a lot of its economic policy is just completely unpalatable to, mm. to um, voters at large. Uh, and uh, just over a year ago, uh, political commentator Bryce Edwards was talking about ACT being in its death throes and saying it was looking pretty desperate. Um, going back to a one law for all slogan, advocate, advocating cutting the size of parliament, you know, reducing the number of MPs, which is sort of the most populous sort of uh, call you can imagine, really, if you if you if you're reduced to calling to reduce the size of parliament, it means you're sort of out of ideas. But the, this year they've really uh, picked up their game. I think David Seymour, he's been in the job now for a few years now. Uh, hasn't really put a foot wrong. Um, you know, he hasn't set um, you know the world alight. He hasn't uh, you know boosted act support so far to to any great extent. But uh, you know, he hasn't created any great gaps. And compared with the previous act leaders, I don't think he's um, yeah he's got the baggage with him that the likes of Rodney Hyde, Richard Preble mm. did. Um, so some uh, some ways, I think he's actually the best leader. Um, but um, free uh, free speech issues uh, seems to be a big thing for ACT now. They relaunch themselves as the ACT for Freedom uh, and emphasising these kinds of things. Now, look, this wouldn't normally resonate, uh, you know, if you just brought this up in any other time. I think, you know, if you brought this up a few years ago, people would say, well, why are you interested in this? But now you've seen a few of these freedom of speech issues. Um, the most recently, we talked about this on the slot, actually, to speak up for women feminist group uh, wanting to talk at Massey University, and uh, they were not, or well, their permission was withdrawn by, by Massey University. You also had Don Brash last year. You had uh, Jordan Peterson earlier this year. You had the Canadians, Laura Southern, Stefan Molyneux last year. So you've had a few of these freedom of speech issues. And then the, the gun issues, as I said, um, you know, X uh, was the only party, David Seymour was the only MP to be against the uh, the initial round of legislation. Although, funny enough, he missed the vote because he was busy talking to media. Mm. Um, so it's not, it didn't actually go on the record. But uh, nevertheless, ACT was uh, formally against that. Um, and also was against the Zero Carbon Bill, but actually you saw the same thing happen. <laughs> that Seymour um, you know, missed, the, missed the vote, which was a bit sloppy. Um, but I don't think changes much about the, you know, the overall state of play. 
So, I mean, they've kind of been lucky that, well, you know, we're not lucky, but kind of lucky that these issues have kind of fallen on their lap. Yeah, and I think that's always what politics is, you know. It's about, you know, um, you know it's taking the policies and the positions and the, you know, the, the standpoints that you hold and applying them to current issues. And sometimes there are just more fortuitous periods than others for your particular party and your your particular issues. I mean, right now we're seeing climate change as a big issue, and obviously this is helpful for the Greens because you know it's environmental uh, environmental issues are dominating the news internationally as well, and this is good for an environmental party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can they maintain this, John? Is this something um, that they can build on, or could these issues just kind of fall by the wayside as we get closer to the election? I think with David Seymour, it's definitely issues that they can build upon and maintain momentum. Um, Yeah, issues of free speech uh, and political freedom, uh, as opposed to uh, calls for, say, uh, more restrictions on on speech and and legislation against hate speech, etc. These are core issues of our time, and they're not going to go away any time soon, especially with the rise of the so-called alt-right and uh, more um, toxic extreme right groups etc that there are um, various demands around um, uh, yeah to, to, to restrict uh, say social media and to, to restrict um, uh, people such as uh, Laurel Summers if you be able to speak in the public arena so I think I think um, yeah, David Seymour has grabbed onto an issue that is going to resonate with a percentage of the um, public. And also, I think he's, um, in many ways, uh, uh, he's quite a principled politician. Uh, he, he he does have core beliefs. Uh, and, and although some people accuse him of basically being a populist, love him and the head left-wing president accused him of, of, of uh, going in a sort of a populist, almost fascist direction with this issue of free speech and... Uh, um, opposing the government's gun legislation. Seymour is very much presenting uh, ex-politics within the framework of, of, of traditional liberalism. So traditional liberalism in the sense of being for um, uh, free markets, uh, for the, the least amount of government regulation of the capitalist system uh, is, is possible and feasible, and also traditional liberalism in terms of um, political freedoms and civil liberties. So um, although uh, it would be easy to frame the whole free speech as this hate speech debate uh, within a sort of a toxic sort of bashing of, uh, say, um, uh, marginalised groups, uh, such as, uh, as Maori, for example, um, I don't, to be fair to Seymour, I don't think he is doing that. I think he's more presenting this argument in terms of, um, yeah, liberal philosophical values. Um, you kind of touched on this a little bit before, Jeffrey, but Rodney Hyde and Richard Preble, both kind of, you know, I mean, Goliaths of, of the political world, um, they've resonated long after they've left. Uh, so, you know, Rodney being a political commentator now, as well as a really terrible dancer. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Richard, you know, he's kind of never really left the spotlight either, although you don't really see him much anymore. I think he still is a name that people remember, right? Uh, right. you know, and kind of hold on to. Um you know, and both of them were kind of likable in their own kind of way. Although, you know, you know, Richard not overly likable, but it kind of was. And I don't think David kind of has that. You know, he's not. He's, he's got. 
Black's a bit of charm. Um, but, you know, can can he be seen in that same kind of light? Is he David or is he Goliath like the other two? I think, I think in a way, he's a mix of ex-previous leaders. I mean, he, there is a wonkish element to him. I, I think uh, John was, was touching there on his principles and so on. And, he, you know, he's, he is interested in that sort of the theory behind liberalism and, and so on. But that doesn't get you a lot of votes. It does give you those in backbone. Um, and I think it's useful. Um, but, you know, he does have a, a populist streak. And I think that's a good, it's a good thing as well for a political party to have, you know, an ability to to uh, get interest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he's not afraid to go and make a fool of himself and dance with the stars, which, you know, is exactly what Rodney High did, of course. It was mm. a copy, really, of what Rodney High did back way back in 2006. Um, so, uh, you know, he's got touches of Hyde with him, touches of perhaps uh, Roger Douglas, touches of Preble. I think he's not above, um, you know, bringing in some sort of populist messaging to try and bring the vote up. What I don't think you've seen, though, from Seymour is a huge turn towards socially conservative socially conservative messages. Um, you know, if you go back to Richard Preble, he had the likes of Stephen Franks uh, and Muriel Newman, who were quite hardline MPs on uh, topics like social welfare, law and order. Um, and even Rodney Hyde, um, he wasn't above that either. He brought in David Garrett, or the party brought in David Garrett, at least. I'm not sure whether... Hyde was completely happy with it all, but um, David Garrett came in as um, Law of Order spokesperson. He brought in the three strikes legislation, mm, and, mm. and that went quite tough on, a, on Law and Order to kind of boost their vote in 2008, which worked, but I think it comes at a, a price when you go down that end of town, if you like, um, looking for those socially conservative voters. But this has always been Ag's problem, is that uh, you know, a party which is socially liberal and economically dry, economically conservative, doesn't win a lot of votes. Um, and so to win votes, they've often resorted to this sort of socially conservative messaging. And look, there there is some dog whistling uh, to the, I mean, the gun legislation, for example, free speech as well. I mean, they are principal positions at the same time, you know, um, more frequently uh, you've seen uh, people from the right take up these issues with uh, Don Brash, with Laura Southern, Stephen Molyneux and so on mm-hmm. than, than figures from the left. And the same with the gun ownership stuff. Um, you know, you can look at it as a principled thing, but also it is going to pick up uh, naturally a lot of right-leaning mm. voters. Uh, mm. uh, Alright, moving on. Um, Chloe Swarbrick um, shot back at a heckle in the chamber last week um, with an OK boomer burn that was heard around the world. Uh, I'm sure most people know by now, but uh, Joel, what does OK Boomer mean? Yeah, I'm sure um, uh, anyone over 30 will be thinking, what the hell does this term mean? Um, the term is basically a, re- a retort that's uh, been formulated by Generation Z types and millennials um, against uh, boomers. So uh, um, that category of people who were born after the Second World War, uh, the baby boomer generation. And the, the idea is that uh, boomers are always going on about um, millennials and Generation Z for being lazy, for being snow flakes, for being overly sensitive, blah, blah, blah. And this is a way of pushing back, that you just go, OK, boomer, whatever. Um, <laughs> so that's basically what it comes down to. Um, the, the, the meme OK, boomer has really taken off over the last year um, and, uh, on the internet, and um, especially with um, social media platforms such as uh, TikTok. Um, and, yeah, so it's... Um, 
uh, uh, people would argue on one hand it's just a light-hearted retort, uh, OK Boomer. Uh, there has been some pushbacks with other people arguing that it's a rather nasty uh, way of sort of slaying off a whole generation. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, um, yes, uh, Chloe Swarbrick's use of the term in Parliament has gone viral, not just in New Zealand, but globally. Yeah, it has. And, you know, I mean, why? Why do we really care that she used it, Geoffrey? Well, I'm not sure whether a lot of people do, um, but it, it's nevertheless, it's, it's amusing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, of course, it's a parliamentarian standing up there in, in a debating chamber and using something from the internet, a meme. And, you know, these kinds of things, they are popular, of course. They, they get clicks around the world. Um, they go viral. Um, and you've seen this before from New Zealand MPs. I mean, just to give you another example, back in 2013, Morris Williamson, uh, national MP, long-term national MP, uh, a video of him speaking in Parliament went viral when he talked about big gay rainbow. This was during the marriage equality Ooh. legislation, you know. So, you know, these things crop up from time to time. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, you know, she, Swarbrick herself said there was an off-the-cuff remark. I don't think it was planned in any great sense. Um, but, you know, it, it obviously something that's quite international and, and, you know, she's now being watched around the, the world saying this on all kinds of of websites in all kinds of countries. It was funny, um, when, when she was talking and she mentioned her age and how old she would be, uh, you saw James Shaw's face confused, um, and, uh, and I guess everybody else didn't do the quick math uh, <laughs> on her age, and I think they didn't understand it. Um, hence um, the heckle and, and the, the pushback or the callback from... Uh, Chloe. Yeah, um, and, and, and there was like a serious context to it, and I think this is the thing that's usually lost. Um, and uh, you know, she was saying, you know, how old she was going to be in in twenty in twenty fifty, right? And yeah. the significance of that being, this was the debate on the zero carbon bill, mm. and this is the deadline twenty fifty uh, uh, for being zero carbon. And I think she was pointing out that you know it was well within her lifetime and um you know she got a snide re re you know re retort to this the heckling in the house and she just shot back with mm. this okay boomer remark um yeah so that was the the context to it. i mean it was a serious debate it the debate itself wasn't flippant uh, yeah. it was the remark of course that goes viral no one watches the rest of the speech and and the zero carbon uh, bill debate um, which was held last week where there were a lot of really interesting points made but um, yeah, ultimately, it's always the one-liner that gets the attention. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, John, is it uh, a serious attack, uh, or you know, is it hate speech? <laughs> um, I, I think it's uh, fair to, to say that generally, how people use the term "okay boomer" is rather flippant. Uh, it has a lot of humour behind it, and and as just we said, it, it it does point to reality that. Um, there is a generational war um, component to, to these issues around um, such as climate change and a whole lot of uh, uh, cultural war issues. There, there's a tendency for older people, um, the, the boomer generation, to push back against uh, a certain progressive politics coming from younger people. So um, uh, I don't think, no, it's, it's not hate speech. However, I think there is an argument to be made that if, if we continue to go down this road of presenting uh, the major issues of our time as that of, uh, uh, of a generational war and a cultural war, uh, I think that's very problematic to say the least. And there's actually, a, um, I think, an excellent article on Vice, the uh, um, media platform Vice, that um, 
uh, dealt with the whole uh, phenomena of this no boomer meme, uh, said that, um, yeah, there, there's validity there, there, there is the reality that um, different generations think differently, uh, and, and when you do have some boomers uh, making derogatory comments um, about younger people as being snowflakes, etc., uh, it's expected that uh, younger people will push back. But this article pointed out that um, um, to to sort of stereotype a whole generation, a whole category of people is, is not only wrong, but it's just uh, empirically flawed that uh, people of any generation will be split along class lines, along political lines, uh, that um, in fact the majority of boomers in Western country uh, are, are struggling uh, just as much as um, younger generations. It's only a, a minority, a large minority, but only a minority of boomers that, have, uh, that continue to do materially well, you know, those who own um, two or three houses, uh, uh, gain rents, have huge savings, etc. And, and, and this article said that, yes, we, we need to uh, speak to the relevance of generational differences, uh, but um, many of, of boomers um, have politics aligned with, with more progressive younger people. And of course, let's remember that the major progressive uh, liberal reforms and left-wing reforms of the 20th century, uh, a lot of them were pushed through by boomers in the 60s and 70s, mm. so the whole hippie movement. Uh, and even when we look at the Green Party, the Green Party uh, was formed by boomers um, uh, in the form of the Values Party, which uh, the New Zealand Green Party sees themselves as being a, a continuation of uh, that party, the Value Party. So, yeah, um, if, if if you if you concentrate on the term too much and focus on the whole idea of politics all being about generational war, then you're missing out on the bigger picture. Yeah, exactly. All right, and well, let's quickly move on to uh, well, you know, the zero carbon bill. Um, yes. It passed 159 to one because one person wasn't there. <laughs> you made it four uh, last week. Um, what does it say, Jeffrey? Well, the aim of the bill is to set up an independent climate change commission um, which will advise governments on how to set targets set in law by the bill which uh, essentially is uh, zero carbon, zero net carbon emissions by 2050 uh, except for methane uh, and mm. there the target is only for a 24 uh, t- to 47% reduction um, by 2050 and the, these targets are set uh, to keep global warming within uh, one and a half degrees by 2050. Uh, um, right, so I mean, does it go far enough, John, or does it not um, go far enough? Is, is it too harsh or too soft? Well, it depends what perspective you come from. Uh, um, if you, uh, um, someone who has a stake in industry and farming, um, and, and that's not just um, owners of industry and shareholders, but people who work in those industries as well, then you might be quite fearful of this bill. That it, um, if, if, if uh, the government pushed through with methane reductions and carbon reductions by actually uh, basically uh, putting a stranglehold on certain elements of the economy, it could lead to uh, a downturn of um, uh, GDP. 
GDP, in, in uh, production and productivity, and, and that could hurt uh, not just profits, but it could uh, hurt um, ordinary New Zealanders in terms of employment. The counter-argument uh, by, by many uh, uh, more radical environmentalists, and even, even uh, the likes of Greenpeace, is that this bill doesn't go far enough. That, uh, yes, uh, it sets uh, very good targets, uh, although it doesn't perhaps uh, push them too long into the long term, into 2050. But um, Russell Norman, uh, the head of Greenpeace, has argued uh, this year, earlier this year, that what was, what was the problem with this bill is that it lacked teeth that it puts in a whole lot of steps to reduce methane and to head towards a, a zero-carbon economy. But uh, if those targets aren't met, uh, th- there's no real mechanisms for forcing the government uh, to to implement these targets if it's unable to. So, yes, uh, Russell Norman actually called it a bill with, uh, um, that is all bark but is lacking bite. And by the time we get to that cut-off date, it could be far too late um, as well. Um, can the, you know, what, what goes on, what happens if um, National gets in next year, Geoffrey? Do they have um, power to totally change the bill, amend it? Well, any government can change any bill at any, or any act of Parliament, rather, at any time if they get a majority uh, to do so. And National is on record now as saying they would change the bill within, change the act within a, the first 100 days. Um, and they've set out uh, seven points uh, that they would change. Um, the first is that they would actually uh, change that target for methane reduction. And, of course, the biggest emitter uh, for of methane uh, are cows, uh, cows and, and sheep, mm-hmm. essentially. So it really is a farming target. Uh, and But they want the Independent Climate Change Commission to set the target. Now, why do they want that? Well, mm, well... That's the question. Uh, how independent is this Climate Change Commission actually going to be? Mm. Because it is still going to uh, come under the purview of the minister uh, at the time. And there's all kinds of potential to, to uh, kind of, um, you know, make changes around the edges, I think, for that, uh, push the target out further, you know, all kinds of things that can be, can be done. Um, so that's number one. Uh, and they're also, they've got a number of other uh, things that they want. Uh, that was the biggest one. They want the... Um, the bill to make clear or the act as it is now um, it's part of the Climate Response Act um, so it's not actually called the Zero Carbon Act as part of the Climate Response Act now but they want the uh, the act to state that uh, greenhouse gas reduction uh, should not occur in a manner that threatens food production um, for example so you know, there is a big tension to all of this I think because you know unlike with other uh, you know, causes of emissions where there's a clear alternative, um, you know, for transport, we can switch to electric uh, vehicles that don't produce emissions, uh, for example. Um, but with uh, current agricultural practices, the only way is to reduce the number of cows and sheep. Mm-hmm. So essentially that's why national and, and farmers are very afraid of this, of this act now, um, because they, at the moment, the only way they can actually meet this target of uh, methane reduction is to radically reduce uh, stock numbers 
uh, and you know that's obviously going to reduce their incomes. So um, you know, unless there's some scientific breakthroughs, uh, and you know there is some possibility for that, mm-hmm. um, but a constraint upon that is the moratorium on genetic engineering, so mm-hmm. genetic modification, um, and that would probably be one of the, the best hopes for reducing uh, methane emissions. So. Um, yeah, there are. It's a complex uh, issue, of course. The science uh, in, involved in all of this. Um, all right, and finally, John, uh, are we on the right track? Is this the right approach when tackling um, climate change? Yeah. So, if you if you, if you believe that the the, the um, central approach to tackling climate change is to reduce the, the carbon footprint of humans, uh, and and also in New Zealand, of course, the whole problems around uh, methane, as uh, um, Jeffrey has pointed out, then you can say, well, uh, this this bill is pointing to the right direction. Um, the arguments are, though, if, if you believe that's the approach to tackling climate change, that uh, the problems with this bill is that it, it pushes it too far into the future. So um, other countries, for example, have, have come up with similar bills, uh, but are, are more looking at uh, uh, targets um, uh, pushing towards 2030 rather than 2050 uh, in this bill. Um, but Jeffrey does point to a contradiction of, uh, of, of of the politics and ideology of certain environmentalists and Greens. Um, uh, and there is an argument that, um, and this actually comes from um, uh, Professor Jim Flynn who, uh, of Tuggy University, who um, uh, is now a prominent advocate for uh, government-centred policies to deal with climate change. There's a problem that, yeah, that although Greens utilise science when it comes to arguing about the, the dangers of climate change, that of course it is real and there's a scientific consensus that it's human-made activity that has caused uh, um, uh, global warming and has continued to cause an increase of global warming, that a lot of environmentalists, because of the uh, the way they fetishise nature uh, over humans, that they won't they reject certain scientific methods that are needed to actually tackle climate change. And so the whole thing about genetic engineering, uh, which um, could be a crucial way of, of say reducing uh, methane emissions, if we can use genetic engineering to uh, breed a new form of cows, cattle for example, that don't release so much methane. Um, uh, the Greens, because of the uh, uh, arguably fetishising of nature reject uh, um, uh, scientific methods such as genetic engineering. And actually a whole lot of scientists in New Zealand have petitioned the Green Party to change their stance on this because they see genetic engineering as so central to actually dealing with the issue of climate change. So yeah, there's, a, there's actually a contradiction there with the Green movement that despite being the, the strongest advocates for uh, tackling uh, global, global trade change issues, some of the ideology actually gets in the way uh, of, of actually um, pushing for some of the, the best policies that could um, tackle this issue. Alright, brilliant. Well, thank you both of you this morning uh, for coming in, Jeffrey and John. Uh, and very much. we'll talk again next Monday. For sure. Cheers. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.